Picture yourself walking to the mailbox. You grab a stack of letters and realize one is from the IRS. How do you feel? What do you do next? And more importantly, how do you reduce the likelihood of having a letter show up and an audit start? That is what we address on this episode of Music to My Heirs. Music to My Heirs, the podcast that discusses generational wealth and wealth in general. Welcome your host, Stephen Lewis. On this episode, I sit down with Managing Director of the Houston Office of Anderson Tax, Mr. Jason Graham. For over 19 years, Jason has been a leader in providing income tax and estate tax planning advice to high net worth family groups and individuals. Jason shares tips on how to avoid mistakes that can trigger an IRS audit and potentially do damage to generational wealth. Here we go. Jason, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Glad to have you in the studio today. And I think this is one of those subjects that nobody wants to specifically say, I was the one asking the question. But deep down inside, everybody really wants more information on what's it like to be involved with the IRS in any form with an audit or something of that nature. And how do I reduce the likelihood of having that happen? So maybe a best way for us to begin is just saying, how likely is it? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. It's not as likely as one might think. You know, you go back to like the 1960s, and I got a statistic from 1963 that of all the individual returns that were filed, 5.6% were audited. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty high yeah. percentage. And it seemed back in the 60s, everybody knew somebody that was being audited. But you look at the, the statistics now, um, in 2017, there were about 150 million individual returns that were filed. Okay. Of those 150 million that were filed, about 900,000 were audited. So that's about 0.6%, you know, okay. roughly half of 1% that were audited. So it's very low likelihood that someone is going to get audited. Does that change if you make more money or because the listeners of this podcast tend to be related to families or involved in families where there are more assets or higher income. I'm going to make the assumption that 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 does change some. Yeah, no, that is that is correct. Um, If you break down and there are statistics that the IRS makes readily available on their website to see, okay, based upon your income class, what percentage of that group has been audited. So by way of example, if your adjusted gross income is over a million dollars, tax returns that have been filed in that category represent about a quarter of 1% of all returns filed. So a quarter of 1% of all the returns are that million and over. Exactly. But of that category, it represents about 13% of the audits. So Ah. very disproportionate. I'm I'm making the assumption that it's because that's where the money is for the IRS to get a return on their time? You know, that would be a good assumption to make. I don't think the IRS would ever come out and say that's what yeah. they're doing, but I would think more their position is, you know, more money, more problems. And if someone has a higher level of wealth, their situation is going to be more complicated, more complex, and therefore there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be errors in the return just because of the volume and complexity. And so it's just an area that the IRS feels that they need to focus on to 
look to make sure that everyone's being compliant with the, the tax law. And if you talk to an IRS agent, they'll say that that is their mission, is that they want every taxpayer to be compliant with the tax law. And as they go out and do audits, that's what their focus is. They want to make sure everyone's doing things properly and that they're not looking to see, okay, what's the most money we can get out of this particular audit? I know that's the perception everybody else has, and that's what the IRS is trying to do, but they're not a business, they're a government entity. Uh, so that's at least how they state their mission, at least the IRS agents that I've spoken with. Well, and one thing to clarify, you know, we're not talking about how do you do some things to avoid what you should be paying in tax and not get audited. That's right. not the discussion today, right? Correct. The, the, correct. the idea here is, is how do you avoid the situation where you are trying to do everything correctly, but you've put yourself in the position that you've gotten flagged, right? Right. I imagine there's some triggers out there. There's things that are more likely to cause you to show up on the radar. Right. Could you lay out some things that you've seen over the years or you just know to be triggers? Yeah, no, absolutely. And first, kind of to address your point, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, the clients I work with and, and our approach as, you know, CPAs is, you know, we're not trying to be shady and see what we can hide from the IRS. I mean, we work within the tax law. But to your point, to be flagged and to be audited, I mean, let's face it, it's a hassle. Nobody wants to do it. Even if you're doing everything right, there's a cost associated with doing that. If you're working with a CPA, well, there's a professional cost in having to work through that. So you want to avoid hopefully being audited so you just don't have the stress, the anxiety, the cost that's associated with it. So as far as um, triggering on audit, first, to kind of step back a bit, like how does the IRS go about selecting returns for an audit? And there are really three categories I would put it in. One is random. They do just randomly select returns just mm -hmm. to kind of sense, are people doing the right thing? And so you could get select for a random audit. So in that category, well, obviously there's nothing you can do. You know, right. you're, you're just the, it's the lottery on that. Uh, another one has to do with um, a system that the IRS has called the Discriminant Information Function, or DIF for short, and they use that to determine how you fall with your peer groups that are kind of in your same income class. And if they see outliers compared to that income class, then you potentially could be audited. Like people that are in a particular type of income class are going to generally give, let's say, a certain amount to charity. Right. And if there's something that's kind of out of the norm, like someone who's making $200,000 a year, the likelihood of them giving half of that income to charity is probably really low. Right. Whereas someone who is maybe making $10 million a year, they might give $5 million to charity. Right. You know, because it, it doesn't cut into their lifestyle as much if someone that's in a lower income tax bracket. So there are those like outliers that they look for. And then last, there are just some general red flags. And that's where probably we should focus next and talking about, well, what are some of these general red flags? Because that's what's in the client's control or the CPA's control to avoid just getting an unnecessary audit because you could have done something differently. And I just want to specify that we're talking right now about income tax. Correct. We, we are going to spend some time on the podcast today talking about estate tax, which is probably as big of an effect for our clientele as income tax can be. But on the income tax side, before we get there, what are some of those red triggers? Yeah, so one, I mean, and this may seem kind of like an obvious one, but it's reporting all of your income. Mm -hmm. And 
the IRS has ways to flag that because you know there are Form W-2s, there's Form 1099s, and so forth. And if you don't report all of your income, they have you know automatic systems to flag that, um, c- computer systems to flag that. It's not even a human being that's doing it. They have a way to automatically flag those types of things. So you always want to make sure that you're reporting all of your income. And if you're working with a professional, make sure you provide them all of your information just so that there's nothing left. That's a good point because I think we all get mail that says a tax document or whatever it might be. I've even gotten some before and you look up and it's like a dollar fifty, And you think, well, this isn't important, right? So right. you say, well, I don't think I need to give this to the CPA. Your point is send everything because right. if the numbers aren't adding up, even if it's small, you don't want to put yourself in a position that that's causing the issue. So have you done a pretty good job of getting clients to send you everything? Yeah. I mean, clients that have worked with me over the years know that I'm their tax guy. And if anything comes in the mail that's anything remotely related to taxes, they just send it my way just to get peace of mind. You right. know, And I could tell them, yeah, this is a nothing. Don't worry about it. Or, yeah, you know, we should look at this. And sometimes they're just confused by it. They're like, I don't know what this is. Just could you look at it and tell me if I need to do anything with it? Yeah, and the beauty of the digital world now, I find you can take your phone, take a picture of it, and send it in an email. It, it's not like you have to mail it, right? It is, right. It just <laughs> quick, easy, take a picture, send it on. I got this in the mail. Tell me what it is. Yeah, no, I get that all the time where it's a it's a photograph with my client's hand holding onto a piece of paper, right. and I can see what it is. So, yeah, it's really easy to send your professional that information now. So we've got to make sure you're reporting all the income and sharing any of the documents that you're getting so that we're calculating all the numbers that don't misalign with the IRS system. What else? So others are um, having to do with uh, deductions and taking, you know, disproportionately large deductions compared to what your income is. You know, I've already mentioned, like, you know, if you do really large charitable donation uh, and it kind of is outside of the norm for your income tax bracket, you know, that might get some attention. Now, that doesn't mean if you really did that to not report it. Um, but just know that you might get questioned on it, so just be prepared to have all your documents in place to prove what you had given to charity. Or if you're running your own business, having a large amount of losses or expenses, creating a large amount of losses, but having very little income. And again, that could be totally legitimate. When you first start a business, often you are going to run losses for a couple of years before you make a profit. Um, but if you consistently do that year after year, um, chances are that's going to get the attention of the IRS. Because one of the areas, too, is even if you have support for all of those deductions, uh, the IRS may take the position that it, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these rules about hobby loss rules, and they'll say, well, you know, is this really something that you're truly trying to make a profit off of, or are you just trying to deduct expenses for something that you enjoy doing? And speaking of businesses, I mean, being a sole proprietor, which means that you're going to file a Schedule C, that does subject you to a higher risk of audit. And that's just because um, Schedule Cs have been a hotbed of abuse by a lot of people, unfortunately. But it's also an area where people innocently make a lot of mistakes. And so statistically, you're three to four times as likely to be audited if you have a Schedule C if you don't. And so a Schedule C, just to explain yes, that, that's the, that's the form you file if you're a sole proprietor, it's just you running that business, and on as part of your individual return, you report your gross income and all the expenses associated with that business. So it's like your own 
personal income statement for your business that you put right into your individual return. Whereas if you're running a business through a corporation or a partnership, well, that's going to be reported on the income statement side of that particular entity. So if you are running your own business and you have this Schedule C, uh, and again, being three to four times is more likely since your likelihood of being audited is only like, you know, half of a 1%, it's still a low percentage, but it still raises it. Right. And so some of the mistakes that people will make in this area is they get a little too aggressive on the expenses that they're deducting. And so you want to be careful. You want to look and say, okay, is this legitimately expense associated with my business? Some of the common areas, for example, are you use a car for your business. And so people will claim 100% of the expense of that car. Well, in reality, people it's rare for someone to use their car 100% for business. I mean, there's going to be some personal use of that car. So usually you want to, you know, be reasonable about it. You know, carve off that portion that's personal and don't put yourself out there by claiming 100% deduction for the use of a car. Um, others are having large meal and entertainment expenses, you know, and you're totally fine taking a client out for a dinner and so forth. But if it's a significant amount of your expense, especially compared to your income, that's going to get their attention. And now I should say it's just meals. Um, it used to be meals and entertainment. Under the new tax law, you can no longer deduct inter entertainment expenses. So mm. that risk is gone. But unfortunately, it's because you can't take the expense. And then, of course, with meals, you can only conduct you know, 50% of that amount. But still, sometimes people get a little aggressive with those amounts, and, uh, and that can get the attention of the IRS. So... If you end up with this letter, is it a letter? Is that likely what's going to happen? If you, if you are going to be audited, do you get a letter in the mail? Yes, and that's actually a good point to bring up. The IRS will only communicate to you by mail. Mm. Um, if you get a phone call and they say they're from the IRS, it's probably 99%, maybe even 100% of the time, it's a scam. I mean, the IRS okay. just does not call you. They right. send everything by mail, and they're actually pretty explicit about on their website you know they want to make sure that people don't get taken in by fraud and they say look we're only going to communicate to you by mail the only time it reaches to a phone call of course if you end up in an audit situation and you're having some back and forth with an auditor well then of course they're going to call you because there's now an established thing going on the other is email the irs is not going to email you a notice it's going to be old-fashioned in the mail paper. So that's important for people to so realize. So if you get an email that says, I need your social security number right. and some of those things, you can know pretty quick. Well, I would even suggest just forward the email to your CPA Absolutely. and say, yep. this doesn't seem right. And they're going to tell you it's not. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I encourage everyone to say, yeah, don't ever respond to phone calls or emails. You know, consult with your CPA before you do anything like that. And of course, if you get the letter in the mail, send that to your CPA as well, because sometimes even those can be fraudulent. So you want to send that to your CPA to make sure that it's really coming from the IRS. And then do you typically then contact the IRS on behalf of the client? Or how does that work if somebody does receive a letter? Right, that is correct. I'm, I've never had a client say, you know, let me handle this on my own. Uh, that's why they have us. And so what we'll do is we'll respond to the letter on behalf of the client. It also requires uh, having a power of attorney so there's a specific form that you include with the response where the client basically signs over a power of attorney to me as the CPA so I can represent them uh, in front of the IRS. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about estate tax because I think that's a subject that comes up for many of our clients. 
when you have estates that are even close to being at the exemption level or beyond, mm -hmm. are the statistics about the same for income tax as estate tax on likelihood of audit? They're much higher. And oh. so by way of example, um, with an estate return in 2017, 8.6% um, of all estate returns were audited. And those estate returns that had values over $10 million, 31% were audited. So mm. huge number. And I think that those percentages are only going to get higher because now that we have this increased lifetime exemption where every person has up to $11.4 million of exemption, that subjects them to an estate tax. If you're below that $11.4 million, you don't have to file an estate return generally. There can be exceptions to that, but generally if you don't owe the estate tax, you don't have to file. So there's a whole group of people that normally would have been filing estate returns that no longer do. And since there's a smaller pool of estate returns that are being filed, well, Naturally, I think the percentage is only going to go up because they have a smaller pool to work with. But the 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 families that are below that exemption that aren't filing, no real worries about an IRS audit. I mean, if there's nothing to file, yeah, if there's nothing to file, generally not, unless the IRS gets wind or word of something that they think the person's estate was worth more than mm -hmm. um, it being below the exemption amount. Then there's that possibility, but those kind of situations aren't as likely. So the IRS would look up at a particular state, let's say over that amount, mm -hmm. they're going to be looking to affirm that the value of the estate is what they believe the value to be. What would cause those numbers to be off? What What is the IRS right. typically looking at and saying, I, I just don't agree with you that the estate is worth this? Right. I'd say the biggest area of challenge with uh, an estate return, or even a gift tax return for that matter, has to do with when assets are discounted. And there are a lot of situations where an asset can be discounted. Um, commonly with um, high net worth individuals, they'll have a family partnership. Mm -hmm. And so your ownership in that family partnership doesn't necessarily equal the value that's inside that partnership because the partnership wrapper that's around it creates an inherent discount. For example, if the ownership in that partnership is a limited interest or a non-managing member interest, then there's going to be a lack of control. You don't really have much say of what's going on in those assets. So there's a discount associated with that. Also, you just can't go out onto the street and sell your interest in the family limited partnership. First, not very many people would want to buy into something that they have zero control over. But two, there's going to be prohibitions in the partnership agreement to limit who on the outside can come in and buy into this partnership. Mm -hmm. So that creates what's called a marketability discount. And so what those discounts should be for lack of control and lack of marketability, professionals in the IRS rarely see eye to eye on that. Right. <laughs> um, I think the IRS generally feels that on average that should be about a 25% discount. Uh, but you can have a situation that could justify a discount of 30%, 35%, or even perhaps higher in some situations. So my experience in audits with the IRS, whether it's an estate return or a gift tax return, I'd say nine times out of 10, it's just right to that discount because that's the biggest number that's going to be different in that challenge. You know, if they can argue that the discount should have been 
10% lower, that could be a very big number. And so usually it just becomes a bit of a negotiation battle with the IRS to come to an agreement on what that discount should be. So let's talk about how the clock affects this. Okay. And when I say the clock, there's a couple things. One is oftentimes some estate planning is done and it's not that far away from when somebody passes away. Right. Um, and then there's also the clock that starts to tick at the point at which you take the discount and you have cleared yourself with the IRS. We call that the statute of limitation, right? right? So help us understand what those time frames are okay. and when when is a client somewhat out of the woods of being questioned by the IRS? Yeah, that's a good question. And whether it's an income tax return or a state return or a gift tax return that you're filing, uh, the general statute of limitations is three years from the date that you filed it. So mm -hmm. once you put it in with the IRS, then they have three years to question it, to review it. And if they don't question or review it during that three-year period, then you're free and clear. Exceptions to that is if you have a substantial understatement of income, going back to an income tax return, okay. that will add three years to the statute or a total of six years. And what that substantial amount means is if you leave off more than 25% of the income on the return, then that will extend your statute to six years. And then finally, if there's fraud, there is no statute. It's open indefinitely. And so fraud, what that means, it's a willful intent to deceive, that you're purposely trying to avoid reporting things with the IRS. And you know, of course, that has to be proven and so forth. But if they classify it as fraud, it, it's indefinite. And it's a little different than negligence. I mean, negligence is just like you were sloppy, you were careless, mm -hmm. you know, you weren't intentionally trying to deceive. You just didn't really do a very good job. You could have done better. And uh, in that situation, um, it doesn't necessarily make the statute indefinite. It can make it six years if you left off a gross amount. And if they do deem you to be negligent, you can get slapped with a 20% penalty, uh, meaning that whatever taxes you should have paid, uh, in addition to paying that additional tax, they'll tack on a 20% penalty on top of that. And the challenge on the estate tax side when you've got discounts on things is that you could lose the entire discount that was put in place, right? That's part of the challenge. If if, so, if, if the IRS were to look at that, disagree mm -hmm. with something that was going on or how it was being handled, famous Strangy case at one point in time on how right. a limited partnership was handled, you can look up and find out that all the discounts that were taken are disagreed mm -hmm. and you're back to full value. Right, exactly. And that's why it's important, especially in that area, that you're working with a professional. Um, you know, Because if you just do it on your own and just pull a discount out of the air, um, you're going to get challenged. Or if you don't have the right facts in place to substantiate that discount, you're going to lose. And those cases that you talked about, like stranging and so forth, those are situations where they're just really bad facts. I mean, people were just not doing things properly. Yeah. And so if you're working with a professional and also as it pertains to a discount, it's getting an appraiser, getting a valuation on that particular asset is important too. I mean, you're going to want to have that document attached to the return. If you don't, well, we go back about red flags for audit. You will definitely be audited if you're claiming a discount and there's no appraisal attached to the return substantiating how you came to that discount. 
Let's finish with some good tips. Yeah, tips on what you can do to make sure that you don't unnecessarily get the attention of the IRS. And again, I want to emphasize, it's not because anyone's trying to hide anything. You just don't want the hassle. So for example, you can have a situation where you get a 1099. You don't agree with the amount. So the worst thing you can do is say, well, that's not right. I don't agree with it. I'm just going to ignore it and not report it. Or I'm going to report the amount I think it should be. Mm. Um, the way you should approach that one is you could go back to the person who provided you the 1099 and see if they're willing to correct it. But if you come at loggerheads and you can't agree on what the amount is, then on your return, you should still report that full 1099 amount so it matches. And then underneath that, create a second line to put a negative amount on whatever you think that adjustment should be. So now you have full disclosure on what you think your position is, and you're not going to get caught by the IRS robots when they're trying to match up 1099s. Um, another area that I had a number of clients um, get audited on, it's kind of an easy fix, is um, having to do with Section 529 plans. Yeah. So like when you eventually take a distribution out of that 529 plan, um, it's not taxable if it's all used for educational purposes. And so when people take distributions, eventually I should say their child who's going to school where they're taking distributions out and they're using it for the proper purpose, they don't report it at all. And so you really need to show okay, this is the gross amount that came out, and then have, if it was 100% for educational use, have a negative amount right underneath it and saying qualified educational purpose. That way the IRS is fully disclosed what's going on, because otherwise they don't know. They're, they'll come and say, well, was this used for qualified uh, educational purposes or not? So that's you know another tip that I've seen. Um, the other is um, home office deductions. Um, that's an area that's got a lot of scrutiny. When I talk with clients about it, I kind of st step back and say, okay, well, what deduction are we really getting out of this? And is it worth it? Because I've actually have worked with clients where the IRS has come in and they want to actually visit the home. They want to see if the square footage matches up to what you said it was going to be for that little home office oh piece. And it just becomes very invasive. Mm -hmm. So you have to think, is it worth it? Do I really want to go through the trouble of doing this home office expense? And some people were doing it as claiming it as like an unreimbursed employee expense, which is like totally legitimate. But that's kind of off the table now because that expense is gone. So that doesn't matter anymore what nobody wants. Right. Those are great tips. A lot of great ideas. I know listeners, you're going to have questions. If you've got questions on this topic or if you've got questions on topics you wish we would cover, just please send an email in to stephen.lewis at bernstein.com and we'll find an expert just like Jason to sit down with us and help answer that. Please make sure and subscribe to the podcast and share this with some friends that have this type of question on the IRS or whatever it may be. Share some of the episodes. And Jason, thanks for coming in today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. This has been Music to My Ears. For more information on this podcast or to ask a question, just email us at stephen.lewis at bernstein.com. Music to my ears.